welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I know I say that every time I start a podcast, but uh, that's just how it goes. That's my saying. So hopefully you like it. If not, fast forward a few minutes. Each time you turn it on, you'll get something start out somewhere new. But uh, been about a week here since I got a podcast going and uh, certainly been a little bit busy here getting a few new episodes to the network. There's some really cool episodes coming up this week. Um, on Knock on TV, the Sportsman's Channel, Wild TV. We've got an awesome uh, Crown Land elk hunt. That's really cool. It was my first hunt back with uh, both arms again. I was super excited about that and had some great friends with me. Super memorable hunt. Um, Didn't get to go into a lot of detail about that hunt, Um, unfortunately, but it was definitely one I'll never forget. We actually got, uh, had a huge pack of wolves come in, uh, during that kill or at the end of, at the end of that kill, I should say, when we were in the process of, uh, kind of taking care of that elk and getting the meat all taken out of it. And, uh, it was pretty cool. I did a podcast for another group of guys and told that whole story i probably won't go into it today uh, just because i've got some awesome different topics here relating to target archery and i know a lot of you target archers are out there sometimes you get tired of the hunting stuff but that's how it goes it's all archery and uh i kind of go both ways i'm I like hunting and I like target and it just depends on what day it is, what my mood is, and that's what you're going to get. So uh, for those of you out there on the East Coast, uh, I will be this weekend at the Dixie Deer Classic in uh, North Carolina. It's pretty cool. going to be in Raleigh. Um, I was actually born out on Fort Bragg, so not too far from there. Um, awesome spot, but f- for those of you... Um, just so you, if you're listening, just so you know the dates as well, you know, it's going to be important that if you're listening to this two weeks from now, you don't end up getting your dates mixed up, but this is going to be the 4th, 5th, and 6th of March, 2016. And, uh, I'm going to do some free seminars and, uh, Eastern time, Friday I'm going to do one at 7 p.m., Saturday I'm going to do one at 1.30 p.m., and then Sunday again at 1.30 p.m., and then um, I'm sure I'm going to be kind of bouncing around. I might have a booth myself. I might take some shirts and hats out there. I'm not sure to stand around and take pictures and ask any, or answer any of your questions from any of you who go, um, but also I'm going to be uh, hanging out with with my buddies at the Redneck Blinds. Uh, they'll have a booth out there as well, and I'm a big advocate of their blind, so uh, I'll definitely be hanging out there as well. Um, we're going to get into a couple different uh, topics here. Um, the last time I kind of posted questions on what all of you wanted to hear about, I got a lot of really good feedback and um, 
some of you who are on the Facebook pages, uh, I'm sure you did not hear your stuff in those last two podcasts simply because that was all questions just from my Instagram account. Now I'm going to jump into the Facebook questions and uh, get some of you guys and gals answered up. Um, First question here is going to be from Robert Rankin. He's asking, um, I'd like to hear some tips and tricks on setting up a blade rest for clearance with a micro diameter shaft like an X10 Pro Tour. Um, And just so you guys out there know, I normally, well, I don't ever rehearse this stuff. It's pretty much uh, impromptu. I do try to copy and paste them and print them off, but... um, well, to be honest with you, even if I did read it five minutes ago, I'd probably forget what someone had asked me anyway. So this is kind of all impromptu. Um, really, the secret um, with setting up any type of micro diameter shaft or any type of like vein configuration on an arrow, whether you're shooting um, a longer vein with a lot of offset or a lot of helical, or if you're shooting like a four fletch arrow. Um, really the key to anything when it comes to setting up on an arrow rest is you have to make sure that you have perfect clearance. Um, and in regards to a micro diameter shaft, like an X10 pro tour, um, which is pretty much what most everyone in the target world shoots, especially this weekend with Jesse Broadwater shooting pro tours and winning the K50 class. Congrats, Jesse. Uh, super, I always love watching you win, buddy. At uh, you're you're a true champion, great guy, and uh, super good for the sport. So, I uh, I always kind of secretly do an air high five to you, just in, just pretending that I was there to be able to congratulate you. But um, he shot the K50 3D with this micro diameter Pro Tour, and if any of you recall years ago uh jeff hopkins won the first uh asa of the year shooting pro tours and it was funny because um i do a lot of work with easton so i know how big the flux of how many pro shooters immediately called easton and wanted pro tours for the next tournament so if it's anything like that you know it's amazing to me how many shooters jump on the bandwagon as soon as someone wins with something everyone's got to have it um although they've been out forever you know the highest rounds i've ever shot um in target and field courses i've shot i've actually shot uh perfectly clean indoor faces with with my X10s and my Pro Tours. And, you know, when it comes to accuracy, so many people in the 3D world are so worried about, you know, trying to shoot a fat diameter shaft to try to cut the lines. And really, until you've shot arrows that are perfectly matched and have better FOC and are ballistically better for foul weather conditions, um, you really don't get the full appreciation of the fact that a smaller diameter shaft can still score better. Um, man, I, I've had bows that just no matter what I did, you know, when you're trying to shoot a real big diameter shaft, um, you just have a lot more going against you. You know, they're gonna, if there's any wind at all, that bigger diameter shaft is immediately going to be at a disadvantage. There's just no question about it. 
Also, it just seems that a lot of people, when they're trying to keep their speed around that 280 to 290 mark, with a lot of these bigger diameter shafts, you end up sacrificing your front of center or you sacrifice... um, you know, you sacrifice the different advantages that you could have had by shooting maybe a smaller arrow that was spined correctly and that has a point weight that's going to be at least 100 grains or better. Plus, with those smaller diameter shafts, when you're able to shoot that higher point weight, you're also able to still shoot those smaller veins in the back and have perfect control on a lot of these bigger diameter shafts you know because you're shooting a lighter point you need to have more steering on the back of that arrow which is why a lot of guys have to shoot a little bit bigger fletch than what a lot of us in the professional field archery and target archery world shoot because they need that arrow to be able to correct itself to get their groupings the same Um, I just, I remember all through the years, how many archers just continually did well with small diameter shafts like ACCs and ACEs back in the days of the IBO when it was, you know, you're trying to get some speed. Um, a lot of the shots were much longer and people really weren't focused on trying to just grab a line. They were really focused on what shot the best. And I remember, so many times great archers like you know randy chapel or the coddles or pete works you know all these people showing up at shoots shooting accs or something like that and they would just say you know what we just when we shoot on a target bale these just shoot so much tighter groups than the big diameter shafts but even if they missed one or two line calls because they had that small diameter shaft for that tournament they were immediately going back to that fat diameter shaft and i'm just not convinced that that's the way to go um i think for group ability you look at the scores that are shot out at tournaments like reading um which are you know awesome tournaments where you're shooting a known distance um at a 3d but also at a spot and the people that are continually shooting good are shooting micro diameter shafts so um, Robert, I've taken a really long way around getting to your question about how do I get clearance on a blade rest with that micro diameter shaft, but I think it was important to go into a little bit more detail about the micro diameter shafts simply because I do think there's a big advantage to them. And really, as long as if you're shooting a blade rest, you need to just make sure that you have a launcher blade one that the blade is not too stiff you know a lot of people try to shoot too heavy of a launcher blade or they have a proper uh, thickness of blade but they make it too steep Um, the steeper you put that blade the less forgiving it's going to be the stiffer you make it ultimately Um, I really like to have my blades laid out at about a 35 to 37 degree angle. Um, I like it to where if you take the point weight out of your arrow, your arrow can pretty much sit exactly how you would like it to sit on the rest. 
but with the point in the arrow, it'll flex that blade a little bit. It will give it a little bit of bend, but you want that because as your fletchings go through that or over the top of that rest, if by chance there is any inconsistency on the placement of your veins, you want that rest to be able to bend and and support that arrow through the cycle, but also as the arrow's leaving that rest and the rest is then having less weight on it, it starts to come up. You want it to be able to have some contact on that vein without causing a huge problem in your in your arrow flight. Um, I remember once um, one of the best combinations I ever had um, was a bow that I had set up with an Easton X10. I had cut, I'd actually cut two and a half inches off the back of that particular shaft. Um, for those of you who don't know a lot about the micro diameter shafts, here's how it works. Originally, the X10 arrow, which is, in my opinion, the best best arrow ever made. Um, the X10 was designed for recurve shooters, so it was designed to flex similar to the same way that a recurve shooter um, or the way a recurve shooter uh, shoots using fingers and also the poundages that are related to recurve archery. They shoot a lot less weight. However, they have more weight at the end. And also with the finger shootings, your, your paradox of your arrow, instead of flexing up and down like with a release, um, it's going to flex it's going to flex more out. So it's, it's almost going, um, 90 degrees, the other direction, how the arrow bends as it's coming out of the bow. But, you know, with recurve shooters and finger shooters, there isn't the same type of dynamic force pushing on the back of that arrow for the first few inches of the, of the draw cycle as you let that arrow go. So they didn't have to worry about the tail of that arrow flexing as much as what us compound archers do. When a compound archer shoots an arrow like the original X10, it'll put a lot of strain on the back of that arrow because of how compound cams work. So what a lot of people found was by trimming some of the arrow off the back before they fletched it, it actually stiffened up the rear portion of that arrow. And the reason being is on the X10, it's much like, or it's exactly like an ACE arrow in that it's a, it's a barreled shaft. It's thicker in this, it's bigger in the middle than it is on the ends. It tapers down on both ends. Um, so by cutting some of that tapered end off the back of the arrow, you stiffen up how that arrow reacts. You can go about three inches total on how much you cut off the back. Um, and what you'll find, for those of you who are experimenting, is as you cut off the rear of an X10, you will stiffen that arrow's spine at twice the rate as if you're cutting off the front. So it gets a little bit tricky and it gets really expensive because those arrows are crazy expensive. So there's a lot of homework involved with how much do I cut off the back and changing one or two pounds can greatly affect how X10s work through your bow. So 
to combat this, Easton came out with the Pro Tour, which is an X10 arrow on the front from the center forward, but from that center back, it's a parallel shaft. So on the Pro Tour, you don't have to worry as a compound archer about cutting any type of length off the back of the shaft. And if you do cut off the back, you actually do exactly the opposite of what you would do on an X10. On an X10, if you cut off the back, you stiffen that arrow. On the Pro Tour, if you cut off the back of that arrow, you will actually weaken the characteristics of it because the back tail end of that arrow is actually the stiffest portion of that arrow's build. So if you remove the stiffest portion, then you're actually going to have more length towards the front of the arrow, which is weaker than what's on the back. So from that aspect, the Pro Tour is easy in that all you do is cut off the front to your length, and you can play around with different point weights and really see how your groups change. Now with that micro diameter shaft, I use um, a Trophy Taker Spring Steel Pro Arrow Rest. I use a 10 thousandths blade. I set it at about you know anywhere from 35 to 37 degrees. And you just really have to, on the micro diameter shafts, you really have to pay attention as well to your knock indexing. And what I mean by that is when you look down the back of your arrow and you're holding your arrow straight out in front of you, how you have your knock twisted will also determine where your veins are positioned on that arrow if you have it clipped on the string. You want to make sure that your indexing is exactly the same on every arrow. This is something that I really work with a lot of my students on is when they shoot groups down in a target and there's arrows slapping together, those knocks can turn. Some people, when they clip them on their string, if they don't get in the habit of clipping it on straight directly over the arrow rest, people that kind of put their arrow onto their string from the side and then bend it or move it in towards the bow, you can develop a habit of slightly turning your arrow or your knock on that arrow shaft and what you'll find is your clearance could not be the same each and every shot and that's why some people shooting a launcher blade every now and then get an arrow that just comes out of the bow squirrely it's because they had contact or too much contact on that rest so you really want to pay attention to indexing your knocks correctly i go a step further and take a little a fine tip sharpie marker and I actually mark my knock right where it connects to the back of my arrow I make a line so that I can see if that line is turned when I build my arrows I make sure that every single arrow has the exact same knock indexing and that'll really help I remember once at the Arizona Cup on that bow that I was talking about how well I had it tuned I remember standing at 90 meters. We were actually um, in the practice round, and I remember someone asking uh, Dave Cousins about you know how to properly tune the rest, and if they ever, if he ever worries about knocking his arrow upside down by accident. And I remember Dave kind of looked over at me, and he's like, "Well, 
if your bow's tuned properly, you should be able to shoot your arrow either way. And and if the rest is forgiving, it'll 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 still hit the center. And he kind of looked at me and said, "You can do that, right, John?" And I just said, "Yeah, I probably could." And he's like, "We'll do it at 90 meters." And I didn't realize that he was actually trying just to get me to put an arrow in the dirt. But I went ahead and knocked an arrow upside down, made a shot, and hit dead freaking center in the ten ring. And I remember him kind of looking at me like, holy crap, you hit in the middle. And I personally feel like that's a big testament to having a launcher blade that's set up to be forgiving and not having your blade angle too steep or a blade that's too stiff plays a huge part in that. Um, don't overlook a fallaway style arrow rest. A fallaway rest is a great option for really small diameter arrows. It allows you to shoot a magnitude of fletching choices and still have good clearance. The one thing that I'll say is if you are going to shoot um, a rest that is like a fallaway style rest for target archery, because of our high numbers of arrows that we shoot, I would highly encourage you to take any type of like silencing felt off that rest and just shoot right off the metal. You know, any type of moleskin or felt will continually wear as you shoot. And what you'll find is, you know, the longer you shoot, your groups will slowly start to move down as that arrow moves deeper into that arrow rest. Um... The next question I had here was actually from, uh, well, it says Brian and Sarah Miller, but I assume it's just Brian. Well, maybe it's Sarah, but they're saying, um, tell us why 99.9% of target archers shoot blade rests and not drop away rests. Well, blade rests, I don't think that number is totally accurate, um, especially if you go into Europe. You know, I was really surprised when I first started shooting on the U.S. team. Um, when I traveled all through Europe, how many people did shoot fallaway rests? Um, and mainly because they wanted perfect clearance and they felt like their consistency was better. Um, and they also travel easier. You know, if you have a lizard tongue on your arrow rest, you know, if anyone snags that thing, it's, it's going to bend or break. And, um, you know, durability wise, that's kind of always a little bit of a headache. That's, that's actually one of the reasons why I loved, um, my Hoyts. Once I started shooting, um, my target Hoyts was because with the shoot through riser, you could actually have that blade rest up inside the shoot through riser. And it was finally protected as compared to some of the bows that I shot before that, which had an open riser design and the blades are always snagging on my pants or something like that. So um, I think they shoot them mainly because of the repeatability and the simplicity. When it comes to fall away rest, you really have to pay attention to not having your cord too tight or not having a cord that is not perfectly raising that rest. The the way that you want it to, meaning coming up um, at the right time and going down at the right time, because you don't want it to go down too soon. If it goes down too soon, then that arrow really isn't getting much support. You want to you want that arrow rest to support that arrow through a long part of the cycle. 
Um, and actually what I'll do is I'm just looking here on my computer. Um, I did an article years ago. I'm remembering it now. So I'll just go ahead and try to dig this sucker up. Um, I did an article years ago about fallaways versus blades. Um, and I'll, I'm, I think I might go ahead and post, uh, that article on one of my Facebook pages, let you guys read through that. Um, and then I may have even done, well, I know I've done one on setting up fallaways and setting up blades, but I guess if I put too much of that stuff out there, someone's just going to end up ripping it off, plagiarizing it. But I'll put one of those articles on the Facebook page, and uh, that way you guys who are looking to set up a, a launcher-style rest or debating between a fallaway versus a launcher, you can uh, make a decision. So next question here is going to be from Matt uh, DePeel, and you're asking, how do you make your site tapes um, software uh walk in or walk out shooting um and you're asking about i guess how to make your site marks for five pin site and just i'll give you a pre-warning i've uh get coming off this flu so i still do have um some sludge in my lungs if i do start coughing um for any of you listeners listeners you're gonna have to just deal with a cough and fit because i there's no telling uh, how long that will go on for once it happens. But um, for my site tapes, I actually use my site tape or print my site tapes from a program called Archer's Advantage. I know there's a lot of good ones out there. Um, for me, what I do is I'll always do two things on my bows. One, I'll print a tape off and I'll have a series of tapes out there because I've never found my site tapes to be a hundred percent accurate based off the data that I put in. Um, and I think the mass majority of that is because of the fact that there just aren't that many chronographs that are super accurate. I just find that my chronograph has inconsistency. So when I type in what my speed is on my bow to print that scale, if the chronograph isn't giving me a true speed rating, um, then I end up having to print a slightly different scale off. So I'll normally type in about three different uh, you know, series of scales with a variance of about 10 feet per second total in speed. And what I'll do is I'll go out and I'll check my marks and find an absolute perfectly zeroed in 20. And then I'll go to either 60 or 70 because for me, I'm super comfortable with those distances. I'll go ahead and sight in and get a perfect sight mark for that. And then what I do is I'll just find whatever scale perfectly matches the 20 and 60 and I'll slap that baby on there. Um, same is true for, you know, if you can, if you're comfortable shooting further, I know back when I shot feet of stuff, I'd normally do the same thing at like 30 meters and then 90 meters. Cause that was kind of the distances between 30 and 90 is where we shot. Um, and I guess the one thing I'll say with that as well is, you know, a lot of people ask the question, do I center my pins in my peep site or do I center my housings? I always center my housings. When I draw back, I anchor and I slightly turn my face to center my peep sight. I always center my peep sight to have a perfect eclipse around the ring of my sight. And 
the size of my peep sights are always determined by whatever size front aperture I'm shooting. So if I'm hunting, I really like some of my sights that allow me to shoot an exact size peep. Um, if I know I'm going to be shooting in really, really low light situations, I might shoot like a five or a seven pin housing, um, simply because I don't, I know I want a bigger peep. So I also want a bigger sight housing to match that peep. If I'm going to be shooting in, in situations where I know, which in a lot of cases, since I'm filming all the time, I know that I can't really shoot in too low light of condition. So I'll shoot, um, like a four pin uh, aperture, which allows me to shoot kind of a mid-size peep and have a perfect eclipse. So I'll always center my housing perfectly in my peep. And then from there, I just elevate to use whichever of the four pins that are in there. And then to shoot the further distances, like with my Sherlock Lethal Weapon Max, um, I'll use my bottom pin and I'll move the site itself up or down um, for my longer yardages, but I still always center my peep and my housing. No different than if I was shooting a single pin scope with my target setups. Um, okay, I've got a question here from Jason Cadenhead. He's saying uh, the parallel cam technology. Um, can you talk about it and my thoughts on it? You know, there's there's a lot of great bows on the market right now. Um, there's a lot of different things. There's obviously a ton of marketing going on right now for all you listeners out there who are seeing big-name shooters go to this company, go to that company. I mean, it's like, listen, people, this is part of what makes industry go around, right? I mean, companies are going to market at certain times and they're going to not market at certain times. I can tell you that for any of you out there who have run a successful business, you know that most business plans start out with like a three-year plan. They really want to market hard and the ultimate goal is to be you know, actually profitable in the three to five year time. So when you're starting out or launching a company you're going to have huge marketing you're going to go after shooters you're going to build shooters you're going to buy shooters you're going to market a lot you're going to create a lot of hype and you're going to hope that you build a clientele and build a loyalty base and right now in the archery industry there's you know there's a lot of new arrow brands coming in there's a lot of bow brands coming in um, you can see that some bow brands that were really popular, like mega popular a couple years ago, they're maybe losing some of their pie to another company that's moving in. And the reality is in five years, we're going to be talking about another company that's going to do the same thing. So, you know, the thing is, and, and here's another truth to the industry is, you know, a lot of these companies offer protected areas to their dealers they don't they want their dealers to be able to stay in business they want them to be able to be profitable they don't want us as consumers to be able to literally drive through one town and price shop three different arrow shops in the same town so they give these dealers a protected area and when you do that you know 
you can't sell to all the dealerships across the U.S. So some dealers are going to be Hoyt people. Some dealers are going to be Matthews people. Some dealers are going to be elite dealers. Some dealers are going to be Bowtech dealers. Some dealers are going to be PSE dealers. That's the reality. And and there's a lot of cool designs out there. Some people are trying to do things slightly different. The name of the game is marketing. The name of the game is having something slightly different than the other four or five people that you have to market against. And, you know, when it comes to like parallel cam technology, you know, it's a system. It's repeatable. As long as it's doing the same thing all the time, then I'm I'm cool with it. I don't think that it's great. I don't think that it's bad. I just think it's another system. Some people really like how that feels. Some people don't. The thing for me is pulling a bow back is there's so much personal preference behind what you like. Some people like an aggressive feel. Some people like a really, really easy, simple feel. Some people like a rock solid wall. Some people really want a lot of let off because they may not be as demanding in their shots. They might just, you know, it just might feel better to them. For me, it's all about just pull the bow back, shoot it, and do you like it? You know, I'm a Hoyt person. In the past, I've been a Matthews person. Right now, I can honestly tell you without any hype, my Carbon Defiant is the best feeling bow I've ever shot. I love how it draws. I love how it feels. You know, I've been fortunate that in the last few years, the cams coming out of Hoyt have been a lot more desirable according to what I personally like. And that's having a little bit more um, forgiveness in the valley and a very, very solid wall without actually clunking into place. That's just what I personally like. And I get along good with them. Um, you know, and I, and that's why, you know, these cams that are on, the Hoyts right now, you know, the cam that's on my hunting bow is the same cam that's on my hyper edge. And some people are saying, well, you know, are you going to change to the target modules on the hyper edge or do you get along with the hyper edge because it has more of a hunting cam? Listen, that cam style suits my shooting perfectly. I get along really good with it. The truth is I had never got along with any type of bow that had an aggressive cam with a short valley. Some people love that feel. I remember when, you know, I used to pull Dan McCarthy's bows back. And for me, I literally could probably shoot that bow three or four times and it would be tearing me apart. I'm not, I don't shoot with a very demanding um i guess full draw feeling he really liked that he got along really good with that he shot a ton of mass weight on his bow um he loved how those cams felt he shot them at higher poundage he did really well with them i personally just couldn't shoot it and it's been the same way with other bows there's there was people that when i was at matthews they hated how the max cam felt you know they really wanted a different feeling cam i always got along really good with it you know i could shoot a 65 percent let off cam or i could shoot an 80 percent let off cam 
I really get along good with the GTX cam with the Hoyt. You know, a lot of people are really favoring the Spiral Plus cams, and they were saying, well, why why are you not shooting or wanting the speed of the GTX cam? Well, for me, I shoot better with the GTX cam. I don't need to miss faster. I need to be comfortable all day. For those of you who are like, just, I don't even have this question on my paper, but I know I just answered it not too long ago. Um, it might've been today even, uh, someone sent me the question. He said, well, it would have been yesterday. Actually, it would have been on, uh, well, no, it would have been Sunday. Crap. I don't even know what day it is. I think it's Thursday, but it would have been on Sunday because I remember the question said, I just shot the best round of my life. Now I'm in the shoot off round. You know, I'm, I'm really worried about, you know, my last few shots have been real squirrely. Is there anything you can tell me quick so I can do good in this, in these last arrows? And it's like, For me, those moments right there, that's what you should build your bows around. Because if you're a competitor and you want to be able to seal the deal in a main event, then the last thing you need to do is have a race car that freaking wants to spin out and do a bunch of donuts when you need it to drive in a straight line. You know, you have to have a bow that's as easy to shoot on your first arrows as it is your last. And this is the same for hunters. For any of you hunters out there who are like debating what type of bow to shoot, yes, you can go buy a bow that shoots super fast. You can buy a cam that's demanding. But I can tell you from experience that if you... Choose a bow that is too demanding that what happens is when you get in the moment of truth and you're tight and you're crapping your pants and your heart's beating out your chest, the last thing you want to do is grab that string and pull on it and it feels like someone actually locked your bow together with super glue because I've had that happen before. I'm actually looking right now. Someone had sent me... Well, it was actually my uncle. He sent me some pictures that that I don't know where he found them. I've got them sitting here in my office just because I opened the envelope a little bit ago. But it's like pictures of me shooting at his house down in Mississippi. And I bet I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I remember I had got a bow that was the fastest bow you could buy back then. It had like a 5-inch brace height on it. And I wanted to shoot a bunch of weight because I wanted to shoot fast. And I remember specifically, I had sat a whole season and a buck finally walks right in front of me. And I swear for the life of me, there was nothing I could do to even bend that string. That thing was a mother to shoot on its own, let alone when my heart was beating out my chest and I was crapping myself on my first like record book buck standing underneath me. And I remember as soon as it walked away and like all of my adrenaline wore off, I pulled it right back. It was a struggle, but I pulled it back. And from then on, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I've made that same mistake in tournaments where I have a bow, it shoots 10 feet per second faster. It allows me to shoot a bigger diameter shaft with good speed. And all of a sudden I get in a shoot off. And when I pull back with a little bit of pressure on me, I feel like I'm doing, like I'm giving it everything I can just to prevent myself from shooting someone in the crowd. I mean, you don't want that. I remember, I remember I was in a shoot off 
for a gold medal in Poland. And I remember pulling back and the target was at the far end of this pier and they let people line up from literally the shooting line all the way to this target at 70 meters. And I remember pulling my bow back and seeing people's faces come into my scope picture because everyone was like trying to fight to like look down the line and see the archer shoot. And I remember like all these people's faces in my sight picture. And I remember like starting to kind of shake around and I'm doing my best to like hold in the center of the gold. And I'm thinking to myself, don't shoot someone. You don't, you know, last thing you want to do is spend the rest of your life in a Polish prison for like shooting someone in an archery tournament. But my goodness, if I wouldn't have had a bow with an eight inch brace height, and a 42-inch axle axle length and something that was really easy to hold back. If I would have been shooting a bow like what some of these people take to the 3D tournament right now, I probably would have ended up creeping and misfiring one through the crowd. You don't want that. You really want to focus on whatever bow you can pull back and feel really good about, whether it's arrow number one or three hours into you and your buddy shooting. That's what you want. And Jason, if it is the parallel cambo, then go for it. If you don't like how it feels when you pull it back, then don't. You know, that's, for me, I'm not, I have brands I love. And I hope all of you guys out there understand that the reality is I've got way less sponsors than I could have. Because I'm not willing to take people's money to endorse something that I don't stand behind. And that's the truth. You know, I could I could probably tell you a different brand every week. But the reality is, I'm not going to shoot it myself. Or if I try it here in the backyard, I end up throwing it back in the box and mailing it back to the guys. And just saying, this was junk. I can't tell people to use this. If you pull it back and you shoot it and you like it and you try it in the shop and you shoot it good, then buy it. But I would like to at least say, give everything a fair shake. Some people have shot the same brands for years and years and years because they really believe in them and they work. And I can tell you that, you know, for me, I'm kind of biased. I love what I shoot. I shoot it really well. I believe in it. I've traveled with it. I know I can beat on it and it doesn't fall apart or I don't have to worry about taking two bows with me to a major tournament across the world. For me, that has an incredible value. No question about it. Um, okay, next question here. Uh, probably should have weeded this one out. I'll, I'll say it anyway. Uh, Chad Rumsby says, Hoyt's delay on carbon bows. Um if they changed the riser, did you have any part of it? I actually had someone else say this to me because I I posted a picture um, of a bow that came all, you know, I had another bow on order and it finally came and it was all crushed in the box from UPS, which it actually shot just fine. I'm going to take it with me to North Carolina. Um, but I had someone else say this too. I don't know. I'm not. I'm never in forums or chat rooms, so I guess I don't know if this is a big reason why people are talking about the delays. Um, the truth is, I know that I've got bows that are 
considered prototypes and I have bows that are considered um, actual production models. And I don't see a difference in them at all. Um, I just know that there is a huge amount of orders off the very beginning of that. And I also know, and I can tell you this, I've worked in the industry. I've worked, well, I've worked in the industry since I was still a teenager. There were years, if any of you remember, and any of you Hoyt or any of you Matthews dealers, you're going to remember this. Um, when I worked at Matthews, there was tons of years, like the first seven years, we would introduce bows brand new and a bow would not ship in production until the end of March or beginning April. You know, for all of you out there who aren't in manufacturing, there's sometimes a delay and especially right now with the carbon, you know, a lot of things like material are coming from a supplier. And if that supplier is not getting you something on time, you're totally hung out. I remember there was a time when we switched, when I was at Matthews, we switched to a high polished anodized riser and we offered like seven different colors. Until then, we'd only ever offered red or blue. But we offered a bunch of different colors, so we had to switch to a new manufacturer, a new supplier that was all the way on the west coast that was anodizing our risers. And we had risers there. We were told that risers would be back to us in a 30-day period. It ended up becoming like 120 days. Four months, we have products sitting at someone else's facility waiting just to be colored to then come back and be able to build them. That's the reality of manufacturing, you know, especially when it comes to a material that you're at the mercy of someone else. I can tell you that I'm not going to say without a doubt that that's what it, what it is. All I can tell you is that I know from a manufacturing point of view, when it comes to building jigs for brand new designs or whenever it comes to a material that someone else has and you're having to rely on their material to come to you, then you're kind of stuck in a crappy position. You know, the reality is there was a there's a ton of other models that are all coming out of the factory. It just wasn't the carbon ones. You know, I remember I was actually standing right next to President Randy Walk at the ATA show and a dealer came up to him and said, well, what do you have to say about, you know, the back order being so big on these carbon defiance? And Randy answered it perfectly. He just said, hey, it's a really long wait. All I can tell you is it'll be worth it when you get it. And that's the truth of it. I love mine. I think it's awesome. I've had a few buddies that have ordered some and they're trickling in now. Um, same thing. I don't really... I know that I haven't been told by any of my people there that this was due to a major riser change. And from the one that I shot my deer with in November to the one that I have that I got last week, um, I can tell you that I don't see any difference, but that's just me looking at it. Um, okay, next question here, Eric Taylor. Um, tell us about your sight pictures. You're looking through the peep. Um, uh, explain the difference between looking past your pin instead of looking at it. Okay, well, I did talk a little bit already, obviously, about 
um, my site picture, but let's just talk about this. A lot of, here's the difference. A lot of aimers look at their pin. Pullers look at the target and have their subconscious mind thinking about what the pin is doing. I look at my pin, but I also look at the target probably more than my pin. I'm focused on my target. I'm letting my subconscious do its best to cover that target as I'm pulling through my shot. What I feel like is a lot of people that develop target panic, I think if you're so focused on looking at your pin, then what happens is a lot of times you end up freezing beneath that target because your focus is so on the pin and your mind doesn't really want to take that object that's in perfect focus and completely cover the bullseye. You know, when you look at the target, my pin is sometimes a little bit fuzzy. I can I know that it's covering the target, but it's a lot fuzzier than if I'm just staring right at my dot itself. And I've also found that if I focus on the pin more than the target, I find that I shoot low a lot more. You know, I just end up falling out of that sight picture. So that's my personal opinion. I like to focus on the target, my hitting spot, more than what I focus on the pin. I like to know where the pin's at, but I also like to let my subconscious work on actually covering and aiming. Uh, Next question here is from Eric Taylor. Oh, I just did that one. Uh, Okay, we've got uh, Jewel Voss. It might be Julie Voss. Um, Or it could be a guy from Europe. I don't know. I might not have pronounced it right. says, I'm a noob to archery and recently purchased a secondhand Hoyt. It has custom strings on it, but I'm I'm not exactly sure if they're good. Um, I measured the axle axle length and it's a half inch longer than it's supposed to be. Um, how do you know if the cable and bus cable lengths are correct? Um, is there a certain process you do to check these things? Um, honestly, here's the deal. If specs, normally if you look in a catalog, specs always have a little asterisk by them or a little star and that's because specs are they can vary they can change if you know a bow at a 30 inch draw might have a slightly different axle axle length or brace height than a bow that's at 27 or if you have a number one cam versus a number three cam um, a lot of times that can slightly change if you back your limb bolts out it'll change your brace height will get higher your axle axle length will get shorter right so um it is kind of just a target number it's not exactly um, an absolute but what i can say is especially if the strings and cables show anywhere i just think one of the cheapest investments that you can make for your bow and your consistency is a really good quality set of strings and cables um, i just can't say enough about people that go out and they'll buy a really good bow or something then they'll want a custom color string on their bow and they'll just like buy one that's like 30 50 bucks instead of buying one that's made right and is gonna keep all of your hard work and efforts into setting up that bow the exact same thing 
you know, I always, um, I remember when, whenever I would walk through the string departments, I've been to a lot of different bow companies over the years and you walk through the string departments and it's like one of the most tedious, boring jobs at the factories. But I remember I'd always tell people, and it's the truth, you literally are building the most important thing on this whole bow. Like the risers are cool. The, you know, the machine shop looks awesome. The machine shop, you know, looks like it would be fun. But when it comes to what you're actually doing as your job in contribution to the archery community, you building an awesome string and cable is what holds the whole thing together. So if you're questioning what you have on there and you can't find out, then I would just say replace it. You know, there's it's an easy fix. It's gonna you're gonna be able to start from square one and you're gonna be able to last. If you don't know if your measurements are right, then the only way that you're gonna know is to be able to take them off, pull them, and actually measure them and compare it with the specs that you'll see on that limb sticker that's on your bottom limb. Uh, but that would be what you need to do. Um, and you're also said, is there a pro- certain process to check these things by adding or removing twists? So um, the rule of thumb is if your strings are long, then you're going to have to twist them to shorten them. If your you know, cables are too short, then you might have to remove some twists uh, however, I've found that I really don't like removing twists from strings because if they're built the correct way, when you start taking a lot of twists out of your strings or cables, you also start loosening your servings. So be mindful of that. Um, okay, next question here is from Ryan Smith. He's asking if you would ever Frankenstein a bow. So take a little bit of this, a little bit of that put it all together you know this is kind of a funny subject because and since i've been talking about um some of my dealings working at manufacturers i'll just say it you know every year i used to get the biggest kick out of people that would you know they would take a bow and well say they would take um a bow that had the new uh you know a new dfx cam and then they would say Oh man, I I freaking built some new strings and cables and put a GTX cam on there and it it just shoots way way better. And you know what if all you're measuring is the fact that you can pull it back and it gets peak poundage and it's at your draw length and you might think that it, you know, maybe it does shoot a little faster, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Do you think that Hoyt or Matthews or Bowtech, do you think for a second that right now, I can tell you right now, Hoyt is working on bows. There's one team working on finishing the bows for 27. There's an, or 2017. There's another group of guys that are right now working on bows for 2018. Do you think that one of the first things they're not going to do is take an old limb or an old cam system and try to make it work on a new riser or vice versa? It's the best thing you can do 
to not have to make new jig fixtures, have more inventory, make your dealers mad because you have to tell them they have to stock a totally different product. I mean, it's the first thing we always tried was taking an old cam or an old limb and put it on a new riser or vice versa. But people like come up to you and they'll say, oh, this is way better. And it's like, well, actually, no, it's not. We did that. And your knock travel's hideous. It like pulls in a straight line down or pulls in a big snake curve or the efficiency really sucks. You know, as soon as you get to a higher draw length, you know, the performance really falls off. It's really only efficient at a 28 and a half inch setting. I mean, that stuff to people who are in the industry behind the scenes and do kind of the stuff that I help out on almost all year long. It's like that stuff's so obvious. Now, is it possible to take a part from a Hoyt and put it on a Matthews or something? I mean, it is possible. But in reality, if you look at the archery industry, Ryan, there's been such a minimal increase in like speeds over the last three or four years or really just how bows from a performance level speeds or poundage or feel or vibration there really isn't a huge increase there's not a big change and like i told you earlier there's tons of companies that are all doing their own little thing and in the end they're kind of getting to the same result. So if you wanted to Frankenstein a bunch of crap together, you could. I could. But in the end, I would just have five times the amount of money putting five companies into one and no warranty. And as soon as you're out on a range and you something comes apart, you just look like the the idiot that's out there. I mean, I think... There's always going to be the person in archery that just like cobbles stuff together. There's always going to be an engineer that says, I'm an engineer and I did this. And he kind of has something totally wacky at the club and everyone kind of thinks, hey, he always invents his own stuff. I mean, just let him do it. Let him go do it. Um, There's probably been times where someone really actually cobbles together something that makes sense. But... I would say the people that are cutting parts or retrofitting or machining, they're certainly not going to be the archers that are practicing very much. So I guess if you want to be an engineer, go that route. If you want to be a shooter, just like get something put together that's proven and solid and spend time behind it. You're going to be way further off uh, when it's all said and done. So we're hitting the one hour mark here. Um, I've got about halfway through what I have written down. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this podcast and, uh, I've got some more topics I'm going to jump into on another podcast. And, uh, I just can't thank everybody enough out there for listening. Certainly appreciate it. And, you know, please spread the word. I would really encourage any of you out there to share it. Um, and also just, keep doing what you're doing the archer community for some reason here lately is like started to i've sensed a divide there's so many people that are starting to like pick teams and pick companies and it's almost like you're picking camps i mean 
I've actually got a new shirt coming out um, that I'm pretty excited about because uh, I just think we're all archers, man. We got to unify. We got to be together. And, you know, there's just so much bull crap going on right now. Everyone's just, everyone just wants something to bitch and moan about. I mean, for crying out loud, it's, for me, the reason why I just love being an archer, I'm not really motivated to go to tournaments, is because what really makes me happy is just, going out in my backyard and watching an arrow tick tock into the center of a target and having a friend come over and setting up a new bow and watching him do the same thing you know that for me that's what it's all about that's where we got to go together we're going to get a lot more accomplished in this whole archery world so thanks everybody so much and uh knock on appreciate it be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com